If you have your Bibles with you this morning, um, will you please open them up to the to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26 is the section that we're going to be looking at. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26 um, is the passage we're going to be looking at. And as you turn there, I'm sure some of you are going, I can't believe we're still in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we've been really, over the last several months, been working our way through the Sermon of the Mount. And I, I, wanna, I just want to talk about that just briefly, if you, if you don't mind. Um, the reason why we as a church and as leadership find it so important that we take time to journey systematically through every single bit of the scripture and take our time through it and not just jumping around at different sections is because when we do that what we do what we ensure is that we as a church are making sure that we get the whole counsel of God when we preach every bit of scripture from beginning to end, we, we work through it systematically. We're making sure that we're not skipping out on tough things that God wants to talk about. Does that make sense? And so there's a danger in that what we do is we're just wanting to find things that we want to hear about, what we want to talk about. And we jump to all the nice passages. We go to Jeremiah 29 verse 11. We talk about that. I, mean, I preached on that three weeks ago, so I'm not mocking it. It's a great passage, but we... We only ever preach what we want to hear about rather than making sure that we tackle what everything that God wants to say about. Man, this word is life. Every bit of it is important. Every bit of it is there for our instruction, for our encouragement, for our discipline, for, for all of it. And so as we go through this slowly and systematically, we make sure we hear everything that God wants to say. And what you will see us do is there will be periods when we stop. We just have a break, like we did the last uh, four weeks. We just had a break. There'll be, there'll be seasons where we just feel that God is saying something particular to us as a church, that there is an issue that needs to be addressed, that we see that is prevalent for us, that we're not going to get to in the text that we're in, and we will stop and we will address that. And we will go, okay, let's talk about that. But when we're done, we're going to go back, and we're going to go systematically through until we hear God say otherwise. And, and really, Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon of the Mount isn't just something we just sumthucked and went, hmm, let's talk on that. But rather we went, we feel the Lord is saying, this is what we need to deal with. Does that make sense? And so I know some of you might be like, oh man, it's getting a bit boring. But I want you to know that if we do this, we get to hear every aspect of what God wants us to say. And not just the nice things that we want to hear. Make sense? And so we're going through the Sermon of the Mount, and, and the Sermon of the Mount is, and I'm going to say this each and every single week, is the Sermon of the Mount is showing us how we ought to become Christians. Not how we ought to become Christians, how we ought to live as Christians, what a Christian looks like. A Christian is first and foremost a follower of Jesus. And so Everything that Jesus has to say out of this passage here is he's talking to believers and he's saying, man, this is how you ought to live. This is the way you ought to conduct yourself. And he's doing this because he knows that there are some things that we do that aren't the way in which believers ought to live. And so particularly over, the, over chapter 5, what we're going to see is we're going to see a number of things that Jesus says these words. He says the words, um, you have heard this being said, but I say to you. And he's some, correcting some things in our theology 
in our way of thinking. Now, Jesus does this not because he wants to be a buzzkill. Jesus is not going to say, you can't do these certain things, or this is the way you need to live, just because he feels like making a list of rules, so that we must live it because that's just the way he wants it. But rather, Christ knows that if we are able to adjust our lining of thinking, man, we are going to be able to experience him more. Does that make sense? He knows if we are able to address these issues, if we are able to align ourselves better like this, you are going to know me better. You're going to experience me better. And as an outworking of that, you're going to experience life to its fullest, and you're going to experience the joy of what it is to know me. Does that make sense? Not being a buzzkill, but he's going, I am your creator, and I know how life ought to be lived so that you might experience the life in me the best. And so as we do this, there's this danger. We just see this as a bunch of rules that Christ is making up so that we just can't do it because he doesn't want us to do it. No, no, he's going, if you want to follow me, if you want to enjoy me, we need to deal with this because these things hinder you from knowing me better. Get it? Great. And I want to be sensitive as well. We're going to be um, tackling in this chapter some serious issues. We're going to be talking about some real tough things. Um, and it's not necessarily easy. And we're going to be talking about things that some of you really struggle with. Remember, we, let's be honest this morning, we're a bunch of sinners sitting in this room. And so well, there are some serious things that we're going to be talking about that some of you seriously struggle with. And I want to be sensitive to that, but I also want to encourage you to know that in Christ you have been set free of these things. And so while we might talk about something, you go, man, I'm really, really battling with this. I want you to know that who the Son has set free is free indeed. And if you are a follower of Jesus, man, you can live in the freedom and it is possible for you no longer to battle with this through the working of his spirit and through Christ's help. I also want to be sensitive to the fact that we spoke about last week, that there's serious marks of shame. We're going to be talking about some things here and you're going to might be feel shameful of either because you are doing it or because there's some part in your history in your life in which you have done something in which you have not dealt with. And you hope over a series of time that it's going to disappear and get better. But remember what we said last week, time does not heal. It doesn't deal with the big issues. It's only in the touch of Christ that it is healed. And that call in which we made last week that Jesus wants to deal with those serious things in your life, that call is just as prevalent today and will be out for the rest of the series and for the rest of your life. Come, let's deal with it. And so I want to remind you of that, that there is some hurt that you're going to might feel as we do with this. And we're going to, like the woman of the world, Jesus is going to start luring you out. He's going to say, come, let's deal with this issue. And it might be horrible. Don't hide. Don't push it down. Don't run into that mind and start asking tough questions. Just rather going, Lord, what do we want to do here? How are we going to deal with this and work through that? And so today's passage, if, if you turn there and you've seen, if you don't have your Bibles, you wouldn't know. But today we're going to be talking about anger. And uh, anger is an, one of those issues that each and every single one of us get angry. We do. And uh, some of you struggle with it a lot. It's a big issue in your life. Some of you not so much. And some of you will probably at the end of the day and the rest of this week as you remember the, the sermon, you're probably going to find that you struggle with it a lot more than you thought you did. Like I have this week. I thought I, ah, I got anger kind of. I get angry now and again, but I'm not that bad. 
Uh, I used to be bad when I was young, when I was a teenager. I used to have bad anger. I remember one day driving. I wasn't, I wasn't driving, but my mother was driving down the road, and someone overtook, and I decided that I will push the hooter and shout at him while she drove, um, because how dare he? Um, and my mother told me with no uncertain terms that I will never, ever be allowed to drive if I don't sort this out. You know, something I was really Christian at that stage, so I worked through it, and I thought it was good, and then I had a child. And then two in the morning when uh, he's crying and doesn't want to stop, I realized I was a whole lot more angry than I thought. And then this week, as I prepared for it, just discussing it, man, the enemy has tested me a lot. And the Holy Spirit has pointed out a lot that anger is something, whether I thought I had it down or not, it's actually bigger of an issue than I thought I had. And so some of you might feel like that as well, but again, we, we wanting to deal with it, even the small, minute bar, parts, because it hinders us from knowing Christ well. And so what we wanted to do is deal with this because, man, we want Jesus. That's why we want it. That's why we deal with this. Okay, chapter 21 all the way to 26 um, is the passage we're going to be looking, reading over the next two weeks. We're going to be dealing with anger, just two weeks, um, and then we'll move on. Verse 21 to 26, it says this. You have heard that it is said to those of old. That's that saying that Jesus will say for the remainder of this chapter. He starts off every time with that. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brothers will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brothers will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the, fire, the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and they remember that uh, your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms with your accuser quick, uh, accuser while you are going uh, with him to court. Least your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and put you in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So as I've said, we're going to be looking over this in two weeks. So today we're going to be uh, discussing verses 21 and 22, and then next week we'll look properly at 23 to 26. But Jesus starts off the same, but you have heard me say, you've heard this said in the past, but now. And the thing that we have a particular phrase that we're going to be discussing, which has been said before, is you shall not murder, and whoever murders uh, will be liable to judgment. Now, that saying there is actually two commandments. Uh, two instructions. The first one comes from the Ten Commandments, right? We've all heard it, to do not murder. That's at first section. And the second section comes from another law given um, in Numbers. And so what the Pharisees have done, and, and rightfully so, they've taken these two things and they've added them together. It just makes sense. They just work together, both speaking about murder. But the problem we have here is that the Pharisees have taken this commandment and basically just kept it at the outwork, at the actual action that has taken place. So for them, the real issue and only the issue was murder. Now that's still bad. I'm not downplaying that at all. But for them, it was just the act. It was never the emotion that built up to the murder. Does that make sense? And the reason why they've done this is because, man, it is a whole lot easier to tick off your righteousness box. Boom, I have not murdered. Right? Majority of us, I would assume, there might be one or two that have murdered someone in this room. I, it's, 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 a re, it's a real possibility. But, but a majority of us haven't. And so, so man, we're able to just take that box off. Boom. Easy. Done. 
Look how righteous I am. I've kept that commandment. And Christ goes, hang on, hang on a second here. It's far deeper than just the action itself. It's the attitude that builds up to the action that's the problem. The problem and the sin is the motive behind the action, and that's something we need to deal with. And we need to deal with this thing called anger. That's why Christ identifies it. Anger is the problem. Now, anger becomes a bit tricky when talking about, right? It's an emotion. And emotions are never really simple down. We can just put it down to one thing. It becomes really tricky. And really, actually, and this might shock you, anger in and of itself is not sinful. Anger is not. In and of itself, it's not sinful. It's something, it's an emotion, a neutral emotion given to us by God. He's given us this emotion. God himself gets angry. So it can't be always sinful. God himself gets angry. We, we see in the Old Testament the wrath of God, right? We see in the, in the Psalms, the, the Psalm is talking about the wrath of God. We see in the New Testament the wrath of God, the anger of God against sin. We see hell is an eternal expression of God's wrath for eternity. God gets angry. And we even see that Paul says that anger is not always connected to sin. He says so in Ephesians 4 verse 2. He says, be angry, but do not sin. And so there is a possibility to be angry righteously. We call it righteous anger. It's not a sinful one. But, man, you can be angry and be sinful at the same time. That's why Paul gives an instruction. And we call that unrighteous anger. Now, what is righteous and unrighteous anger? Let's differentiate between the two. Righteous anger is something that is egoless. It's firstly something that is egoless. It's not about you or me. It's not about yourself. It's not, it's not an internal expression of trying to defend yourself or even an outward expression of that anger of defending you, your personality, not about you. Righteous anger is always for the glory of God and about others as well. But it's always about God's glory. Now let me give you some examples to help you understand. We see in, in, in Scripture, we see Moses. Moses goes up Mount Sinai. He goes up there for 40 days, him and Joshua. They get the Ten Commandments. And as they come down, what do they find? They find the Israelites have built a golden calf and they all worship in it. And Moses burns with anger. He smashes the plates. And he shouts and there's a whole bunch of stuff come go over. But his anger is righteous anger because why? It is defending God. He is upset that these people have betrayed God. It's not about himself. He's not taking this personally. It's about God. We see it again with Paul. Paul is walking through Athens. And uh, he's waiting for some people to arrive. And as he walks through Athens, he notices all the idols. And it says Paul's spirit was provoked. He, he's, he's angry by these idols. Why? Because he's, he's just annoyed that so many people were worshiping other gods, not the true God. He's annoyed by the demonic um, influence in the city. He's angry. It's about God, not himself. Man, we see it again with Jesus. Jesus is, uh, we see it in Mark, um, Mark chapter 3. We see that Jesus is about to heal a guy, a man with lame, he's got a lame hand. And Jesus wants to heal him. 
But the Pharisees are all standing back and they're watching and they're looking at Jesus and they're waiting to see if he will heal on the Sabbath. And he even asks them the question, is it wrong for me to do this? Because he wants to have a discussion and they just keep quiet. They refuse to answer because they're wanting him to do it. And he, Jesus goes and he heals this man and they get, they get up and leave to go and uh, scheme together on how to destroy him. And Jesus, it says, Jesus gets angry. He gets angry because they would rather have this man crippled than him healed. And you see, the big issue for that is was that a lame man could not, anyone with a defilement could not go into the temple and worship. They weren't allowed in. Only if you were more seen as perfectly healthy could you go in. And so this man's experience was that he could never go into the temple and worship God. But yet they would rather have him not worship God and not be healed on a Sabbath than be healed on a Sabbath so he can worship God. And, and Jesus gets provoked. He's angry that these men who were meant to represent God and represent uh, him and his worship and be the people's guide is rather that they, they won't do it because he would rather heal on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is angry. We see it again when Jesus gets annoyed with these people selling stuff in the temple. Jesus goes and makes a whip and then throws all the tables and chases them out of the whip. Now that's premeditated, I might just say. He's gone and made a whip. It wasn't just lying around. He's gone and made it. Jesus gets angry. Why? Because he's, he's got zeal for his father's house and his honor. And they were doing it wrong. His cross but in all these examples, it's never about themselves. It's always about God's zeal. And even connected to that, other people. And the problem, I wouldn't say the problem. The thing about righteous anger is that it becomes real tricky. <laughs> because there's a danger here, and then I say that we might feel a righteous anger, and it's easy, it quickly can easily lead to unrighteous anger. Let me give you an example. We're using our soup kitchen as an example here. Man, we have this righteous anger against poverty, that these people are, are, are in a bad space. We're doing something good here. We, 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 we wanted to do something great out at Orange Grove. We wanted to feed the children. It's, it's, we are angry that these children aren't looked after well. Angry against poverty. Righteous one. We want to glorify Christ in it. But... As things do in ministry, and we must be prepared for it, is that there might become opposition. The enemy is not going to be happy that we're doing this work, and there's good chance persecution comes along. And for some reason or somehow, they stop us from doing it. This is just an example. There is a danger that it becomes an attack against us. And so we make it personal. How dare they stop us? us from doing this this is don't they know what we are wanting to do and we get angry because it's we feel it's more personal than impersonal does that make sense and so there's and we can feel justified in it but it's gone from righteous by god's glory of doing other things to oh man they're doing this to us don't they stopping what we want to do and it all becomes about us and we quickly move into unrighteous anger may i say to you that Righteous anger is good. It's good. But it is very, very rare. And so if you're going around saying, I have righteous anger a lot, you're probably wrong. <laughs> you're probably wrong. It's more likely unrighteous anger. And that's a dangerous place to be. 
And so unrighteous anger, what is it? Well, we can define it in two ways, and I'll give you some examples. Well, firstly, as we've already kind of discussed, righteous anger is ego-filled. It's about me. It's defending my reputation. It's when we feel threatened, when we feel ignored. Someone who's meant to give us the attention doesn't give us the attention. We feel rejected. We feel criticized, snubbed, humiliated, unfairly treated. So if you are married, you've experienced all of those. (laughs) At some point, at some time, you have experienced all of those. And so there is an unrighteous anger there. Man, but it's also frustration. It's someone stopping you from getting somewhere that you should be going, stopping you achieving what you should do. My, uh, one that gets me is when, I don't know how you guys shop, but when I get all my stuff, I stop. I don't just go to any old till. I choose which till is the most empty, and I will go there. If there's someone with a whole two trolleys full, I'm never standing behind them. It's going to take me too long. So I'm going to go find the person with the least amount of stuff. And you rock up to that person who has the three items, And as you get there, they forget something. And now you're standing there, and the lady has to, they go quickly, go fetch something. Oh, it's frustrated. Or, for those of you who smoke, you get to the till with your three items, and then you ask the lady to please please go get your blue Peter Stuyvesants. And now the lady has to walk all the way across the shopping center to the express till where you could have gone (laughs) to get your cigarettes. Oh, burns inside. Anger, frustration, it's, it's, it's the annoyance of just that sigh. <sighs> Something so simple. I'm giving you silly examples because I don't want to just give you big ones because we downplay the little ones. Even that just that <sighs> unrighteous anger. Taxi cuts you off, man. That spam call you get, they want to sell you another cell phone. And as much as you tell them you've already got one, hence they've called you on it, they want to give you another one. As much as you try, stop. They will not listen, so you just hang up <laughs> in righteous anger. But why do we have to deal with this? I mean, little, I'm, I'm playing again, I'm playing down the little ones because I want to show you that the little ones are bad. Is why do we have to deal with unrighteous anger? Why is it such an issue? And we kind of already discussed part, part of it, but first thing is that unrighteous anger is the quickest way to grieve the Spirit. To grieve the Holy Spirit in our lives. We see this, Paul understands this. He says this um, in Ephesians. He says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. Here he goes on. The very next sentence is, Let all bitterness and wrath and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. Man, anything that is anger and bitterness and gossip and slander towards somebody else is something that grieves the Spirit in our lives. It, it quenches it up. This, this, the Spirit takes a step back out of our lives. Now, He doesn't leave us completely, but He just goes, whoa, I, I'm, I'm not going to, until you deal with that, I'm just going to take a stand here until you get rid of that stuff. And the Spirit takes a step back, that sigh. Man, I can't believe that person didn't get their stuff there all they needed. Now I'm here. Spirit takes a step back. Getting cross with that taxi. Spirit takes a step back. And we grieve the Spirit. And and the reason why this is dangerous, and I I, I sometimes think we have a poor understanding of the Spirit. I hope one day we teach on the Holy Spirit. I really do. But the the reason why I think we downplay this is because we just think 
the Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, so therefore he's the least important. Man, he's not. Just because he's called the third person doesn't mean he's the least important. On the contrary, he is vitally important. He is God himself in our lives, leading us so that we might live for Christ, for his glory, get to know him. It's by the Spirit that we experience the presence of God. Hugely important. And we don't play it. Whether because we think he's unimportant or because we're so scared to talk about the Spirit. But this anger is the quickest way to grieve him and quench him. We quench God. We, we grieve God. It's something that we need to worry about. And also in this text, we, there seems to be levels of judgment, right? There's levels of anger. And in this text, it seems to be that way. And there seems to be, as a result, levels of judgment that take place first. So we see here the first one that says, yeah, everyone who is angry with his brother, this seems to be an eternal anger. It's not an express, it just seems to be internal inside here. So you haven't shouted, you haven't even sighed, but inside you are boiling. Someone's done something, and some of you might be passive aggressive. So this is something that you're really good at, keeping it inside, and you think that's fine, but actually it needs to be dealt with. And Jesus says, yeah, you'll be liable to judgment. You see, this is an anger no one else sees, but only God sees. And the moment that anger is unchecked is the moment God holds us accountable to it. He wants us to deal with it. He wants us to sort this out. Because, man, you can leave it inside, but what happens is it smolders. It heats up. It gets bigger and bigger, waiting for that explosion, waiting to get bigger and bigger. But what do we mean by judgment here? and I've kind of mentioned this with the Holy Spirit already, is what we mean by judgment is that God is willing, if you are willing to hold anger against somebody else as, and, and break off fellowship with them because of this internal anger that you're frustrated with. And you know, you can still hang around with them, but you're treating them badly. You're hoping they're going to notice internal anger, if God, you're willing to do that, God says, if you're willing to break this fellowship, I'm willing to hold my fellowship off. Not break it. Hear me again. We are secured in Jesus. We, we don't lose our fellowship with God. We are his sons and daughters. He is our father always, if you believe in Christ. But what he does is he holds it back. We grieve him. And he takes a step back. It is the reason why so many of us are angry, but we lack joy and we lack peace. It's missing. Man, it's the reason why some of our prayer lives are hard and difficult, because God has taken a step back. It's the reason why some of us read scripture and we battle with it, because it doesn't seem to jump out at us, because we are holding something against a brother, and Christ is going, well, until you deal with that, man, you need, I'm going to take a step back. It's the reason why sometimes our worship is just not genuine and it's boring. And until you deal with it, the peace will not return. That's judgment. And, but why, God, are you taking this so seriously? I just sighed. I'm not even expressing it. Why judgment? Why? Why does God take this so seriously? And I want you to hear me here. Is that it's contrary to the gospel. Unrighteous anger, church, is contrary to the gospel that Christ is all about. I want you to explain this, and this is going to sound simple to you, but I want you to hear this. 
is man, we have all messed up and sinned. We've, we've spoken about that. We have a bunch of sinners sitting in this room. We have all messed up and sinned. And God rightfully, justfully could pour out his righteous wrath upon us. He could have wiped us out in an instant and been justified to do so and been just as holy to do so. He did not have to do anything otherwise. But God, rich in love, rich in mercy, holy and justified, sends Jesus Christ to come and die for us, for our sin. And yet somehow in our pridefulness, our hurt ego, we stand there and go, that person deserves something. It's contrary to the gospel. The gospel's different. And if you, and you're going, oh Lord, why would you hold a fellowship with me for over something so small? But he's going, man, I've given you so much. Yet you would hold someone, you would hold again your fellowship with someone else and be angry with them over something even far smaller. It's different to the gospel. And that's why God and Christ takes it so seriously. Get it? It's different to everything. There's another level that seems to go. That's only level one. Is in the next next stage or next degree seems to be. It says this. It says, let's read. It says, whoever insults, and the word insults here is raka. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. His brother will be liable to counsel. This is the internal anger that has happened inside of us suddenly becomes external, right? You build up. You haven't said something, and now you say something. It's an insult. It's verbal. It's, it's, a, it's an attack on someone. And raka is the word to mean stupid, uh, blockhead. Uh, I can only think of nice ones to say here. Um, the, it's, it's, a, it's something we need to say. It's, it's an insult at someone. You, nothing in your head. You, you're dumb. You're dwarf. Um, you, you're saying these things. It's a verbal attack at them. And, and, and it's something now that becomes expressed and visible for all to see. And this is why I say you can be judged by counsel, is because where previously it was internal, no one, knew, no one else knew about it, and it was just between you and God, it was a spiritual thing that needed to be dealt with. Now it becomes, I get crossed with Pete, and I say it outside. Me and Peter have a fight, I call him dumb, and, and, and we, we get crossed, and you all see it. You have the right now. To come and check. Hey, Joe, hang on a sec, bud. That's not right. It becomes visible for to see, so now it becomes invisible. Not only is God wanting to deal with you, others have the right to come and say something in your life as well. Your family, your friends, your boss, you do something wrong, so you have a hearing. Church leaders, elders get to come and speak into your life. Say, hey, this is something that needs to be dealt with. So the, the judgment becomes bigger because it's not only God, now it's other people. And the danger of this one is that the reputation of God is being damaged. Our anger, as much as it might seem small to you, as a representative, as the ambassador of Christ, suddenly we are damaging God's witness. People say, man, that person gets angry. They go to church. And so the reputation of God, his glory, it's opposite of what righteous anger about. Righteous anger is for his reputation. Unrighteous anger damages his reputation. And so it becomes there. The next one, and the next stage is, is the final, final stage. Um, and, and that one says, whoever says you fool will be liable to hell or fire. And the word hell there is Gehina. I'll explain why I'm mentioning that later. The Gehina of fire. It's it, this 
becomes the internal anger that's moved to the external anger that suddenly boils up and goes all the way to the end where you are contempt with someone. You are angry with them to the point that you say, you fool. And the word you fool here is more than just the word you fool, but the, the, the imagery that's used, the emotion behind it that's used, you are worthless. You don't deserve life. You are, you are nothing. Life would be better off if you did not exist, right? Have you not thought that about someone? Said that? Oh man, if, if they just didn't exist, life would be better. It's the, it's the emotion behind it's the degree of anger that gets so full that you go, yeah, that piece of rubbish, they're nothing. That is the anger that actually leads to murder. It's the, the final stage that will then push you over to murder. It is that worthless, you are nothing at all. Sometimes thought about that about certain dictators. Man, why doesn't someone just wipe them out? The whole country would be better off. Take them out. That's the imagery. They're full. The third, the, the third level of judgment, then it says it would be liable to the, fire, uh, to the hell of the Gehenna of fire. What does that mean? Does that mean that a Christian can lose their salvation? The answer is no, it doesn't. And I explain why now. Does it mean a professing Christian who persistently displays this type of anger, this, you fool, you worthless, you, I, I, you don't deserve to be alive, is it possible that maybe that person wasn't a Christian and will then go to hell? Maybe, possibly. Can't judge on that. God will judge based on their relationship with Christ. Or does it mean fire of hell can be, the hell of fire can be applied to a Christian? And I want to say, yes, it can. And what do I mean by that? So, firstly, uh, we see in 1 Peter 1, verse 6 and 7, it says these words. It says, yeah, if you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes. Uh, though it is tested by fire, and the word fire there is Gehenna, may be found in, uh, to result in the praise um, and glory and honor of the Lord the revelation. So the, the word fire that is used there and the word fire that is used in this passage by Jesus, Gehenna, is the same word. Now Gehenna is an imagery that Christ used to describe hell. It was um, the rubbish dump outside of Jerusalem. That was the place it was caught. That's where they jumped their waste, they would jump their rubbish, and it would burn. And Jesus, thinking of the worst imagery that he could use, would describe hell as Gehenna. So people would see that. And so here when he says, man, uh, that it, when Peter speaks about Gehenna, the fire here, he's, he's saying, it's, you're going to be tested. There's going to be a fire that's burning, like fire, you've gone through Gehenna, you've gone through this fire, and you're going to be refined. And so what I think is what Jesus could potentially be talking about in Matthew 5 when he says, the Christian who won't go to hell will be tested by fire, is if you struggle with this anger, what's going to happen is God is going to put you through some serious trials to try to refine you with a fire so that when you come out of it, you won't struggle with this anymore. Does that make sense? That, man, you're battling with the serious sin, so God's going to let you go through some serious trials, could put you through the, the fire so that you might come out more pure, more righteous, having dealt with this. Potentially one of the ways in which that, that word Gehenna is used for us as a Christian. Again, 
We see it used in 1 Corinthians 3 verses 13 and 15. It says this, Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, Gehenna. And the fire, Gehenna, will test what sort of work each one has. And in verse 15 says, If anyone's work is burnt up, uh, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire, through Gehenna. So what's going to happen is one day when we all die, we're going to stand before Christ and he's going to test the good works that we did. Did we use it selfishly? Did we not? He's going to test our life and the things that were done for his glory, righteous anger, part of that, and other works that we've done, man, they're going to be like silver, gold, and precious stones. They go through fire. Guess what? They come out the other side. But anything else that we've done for self, unrighteous anger, about me, the ego, anything that is done will go through that fire and it will be like wood, straw, and there's another one. Sorry? Stubble. Another one that burns up. Hey, hey it is. Uh, we'll stubble. And uh, goes through it and will be burnt up and it will thing. And those of us who don't have anything good to come with it, man, it says we, we will make it into eternity. So we don't lose, we don't lose our salvation. Yeah, do you see that? You'll make it in, but you're like going through fire because everything that we've had is burnt up. You'll smell like smoke, but you'll be there. You'll be there. And so this judgment is, man, you will lose. You will, God will put you through the testing of fire so that you might be more refined. Because why? He cares more about your relationship with him than he cares about your comfort. So he'll put you through tough times so he, that you might deal with this anger. He will burn up your bad stuff at the end. We will suffer loss as a result. It's a bad judgment. Does that make sense? Come speak to me afterwards if it didn't. And we're going to close off with this and I'll say two quick things. This is difficult. I know because this week I've been trying my best. <laughs> Man, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. I've said that a lot, a lot this week as I've realized the frustration building up in me, the grumpiness inside of me that I didn't think was an issue before this week as much as it is. But we need to look to Christ as our example as part of the help in this. Because the incredible thing about Jesus is he never, ever displayed unrighteous anger. Man, he was taken at near the end of his life. When he was going to be crucified, he was arrested, falsely accused. People said he said things he never did. And yet scripture says he never opened his mouth to defend himself. Not once. Oh, man, we see he opens his mouth and defends the Father. But when it comes to himself, he never opens his mouth. I'm not going to say anything. You said this and did this and did this. All false. Just keeps quiet. In fact, when we see him nailed, beaten beyond recognition, and nailed on a cross, the only words he does say as they mock him, oh, if you are the king of kings, as he dies for their very sin, he doesn't just say, watch, wait and see. When you die, you will see me on the throne. He doesn't say that. What does he say? Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they do. And man, we look at a savior who is our example on how to live. It is. He's our example on how to deal with this. And we look to Christ. We remember a lot of what he's done. And we remember the grace he has shown us. But remember the Sermon of the Mount. And this is my last point. Remember the Sermon of the Mount. Everything of the Sermon of the Mount is built off the Beatitudes. Remember, we, I emphasize that a lot. 
And so we don't just finish with the Beatitudes and now we've moved on. Every characteristic of the Sermon of the Mount helps us to live out the rest. And so how, as I was thinking this week, what kind of characteristic out of the Sermon of the Mount helps us to live in a place of righteous anger, not righteous anger? And it stood out to me, meekness. Meekness is it. I could have just changed the sermon around a little bit and we could have spoken about meekness today. Meekness is about not caring about oneself, but caring about God and his kingdom and about others. That's what meekness is. It's not taking offense and wanting to build my kingdom. It's about building God's kingdom and hoping that others come to know him and be a part of that kingdom as well. And so meekness is what's required in order to have a place where we don't struggle. Well, we don't constantly live in a place of unrighteous anger. And so if we are battling with, with rage and anger, it's probably because we haven't got meekness down. But how do we become meek? We need to get those first two beatitudes in our lives. And the first place that we need to do is we need to realize, man, we are poor in spirit again. We need to destroy that ego that gets so upset. It's the ego that's problem. But po- being poor in spirit is standing before a holy God and remember we are nothing. We bring nothing to it. There is nothing there that is worth to be praised, that's worth defending, that's worth standing up about. Because in a holy God, we fall short. We fall massively short. And so therefore, I, I, am, I have been received much before this God. I am nothing. I'm completely dependent on Him. And man, we repent of our sin. Lord, I've messed up. I'm sorry I've made it about me. And when we do that, we start to become meek. It's not about my kingdom, it's about God and about others. And when that starts to work in our lives, righteous anger becomes more common and unrighteous anger becomes less common. Constant battle, constant struggle. But as we seek the Spirit, as we ask Him to help us, we repent and we come. And that's the place what we need to do. We come and repent. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me, forgive me. As you notice it, say, Lord, forgive me. Work it, work it, work it, work it. Get it? Good. Let us pray. And, and while your heads are bowed, remember we're going to have some time after the service. We're going to start this every week. We, let's pray. Are you struggling with this? Let's deal with it. Let's pray. The Son has set free is free indeed. And so let's pray that the, that the Holy Spirit will help you and you will be empowered to live for the glory of Jesus by dealing with this. Peter and I will be here for a while after the service. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you are a God who is so meek, that you are a God who acts at a place of righteous uh, anger, not unrighteous. We thank you that Jesus Christ is, is such an example to us, that you have sent your son Jesus to die for us and take upon your anger upon himself, his, our punishment upon himself and not on us. We have received so much from you, Lord. We are so thankful for that. But Lord, we want to acknowledge this morning that frustration, anger in our heart is something that's real. It's something that we do struggle with and we pray that you would forgive us. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for quenching you, forgive us for taking ourselves so seriously. Forgive us, Lord, that we would uh, be uh, so willing to accept grace but not so willing to give it. And Lord, so we, we pray that you would do a work in us, mold us, shape us, help us, point out to us, be quick to show us, Lord, where the anger is rising and give us the strength and ability to be able to put it down, we pray. 
Because, Lord, ultimately we want more of Jesus. We want you. And if this anger thing is stopping us from getting you, Lord, we want to get rid of it. So we pray that you do so. Help us to do it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.